ultimately it's all about being a performer and connecting with people and, yeah, exactly. and serving that role. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. In this interview, Bill Bartholomew illuminates the life of a full-time artist, how being a podcaster has informed his music, and he tells the story from one of the most important days in his career. We also chat about his new EP, Bats, which is out digitally on June 11th, and got to discuss how this particular record was made and what he's striving for with the release. So as always, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now as I'll be putting out some mini-episodes with Bill over the coming weeks. And follow Where the Living Room Used to Be on Instagram using the handle at livingroomutb to see some flyers, show photos, and a whole bunch more from Bill's time in music. Bill Bartholomew, thank you for jumping on uh well my podcast where the living room used to be uh, i'm a huge fan of what you're doing with bartholomew town and and we can kind of get into that stuff um but you know we're going to focus on on your music history uh as it's connected to rhode island and um yeah just a, it's a pleasure to to have you on well this is awesome i mean this is this is great because i'm such a big fan of your show as well and of you and um this is great so i'm excited to be here well excellent um you know as as we usually do we'll kind of start with where you grew up uh you know i know that you're uh south county guy right charles charlestown right is that where yeah, you grew up? Ex- yeah exactly i grew up in charlestown and in the woods you know what i mean <laughs> kind of just basically my sister and i and my cousin across the street not a lot of social interaction for most of my childhood um, really even into high school, you know, I had people in my life, but I was pretty isolated. I was kind of more engaged with the environment as a whole and kind of being oh, really? in my own head, which was, which, which mattered, you know, and I'd always get the Providence Phoenix up at Rippy's Liquor Mart on Route 2, um, <laughs> you know, WRIU and BRU. And those are sort of my early portals to the outside world, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. And music was, it was something that was definitely always a part of my life. But, you know, my parents, um, especially my mom, really, you know, kind of censored what I could get if I was able to get to Newberry Comics. Like I was, it took me a while to be able to really, with permission, listen to even WBRU. And, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So a lot, of the, a lot of the music that I originally grew up with was kind of like the adult album alternative, WSNE type of stuff, and a lot of Sesame Street. Yeah. And okay. I think, I think both of those areas actually do play kind of a big role in in the sounds and and melodies that I started to get really interested in. Yeah. Well, when did you start playing music, and what was the first instrument that you played? Was it guitar, or were you learning something prior to that? Um. Well, I I had had like a yard sale guitar kicking around, and you know I remember getting like the Casio keyboards for Christmas, things like that. So, you know, I'm playing, it play a drum beat and start to kind of 
mess around as early as like, I think like sixth grade or something, somewhere in that range. But my first instrument was actually drums. And oh, really? Okay. I, yeah. So I was very lucky that um, I started with a snare drum and got in, in seventh grade. I joined the Charaho middle school band and they had to like pull strings to get me in there and work my schedule all, all wacky and everything to allow me to, to join the band and start studying drums privately as well at that time. And, um, and I loved it. And I just started to, to identify very quickly. I was like, Oh, this is, this is who I am for the first time. I really feel like I have a legitimate identity behind the kit, um, yeah. drum, drumming to, to songs on the radio and then even starting to kind of sing and play drums mm-hmm. and, and write these like really crazy, they're not even songs, like concepts that <laughs> you know I mean? no one else could possibly want to hear. But yeah, so I started on drums and then I got an electric guitar a few years later and I had a group of friends that we were, we all loved music. No one really played a rock band instrument except for me, I had played drums. Mm-hmm. Um, but we said at some like school dance or something, we're like, oh man, this sucks. Like, let's, <laughs> let's start a band. You know yeah. what I mean? was, let's start a band. And we started this band acid rain revival. That oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I played guitar and, and sang and there were at upwards at times of six of us. Oh, wow. And okay. We just all worked our way through the Neil Young catalog and the, the Beatles catalog and like all these like very basic um, singer songwriter type of artists, but, and then start to write crazy songs about our teachers and our classmates. You know, I started <laughs> using a megaphone on stage and it became this, when I think back and even when I hear it back, I'm like, wow, this is so interesting because emo was so huge at that point in time. And we were playing a lot of YMCA's or even venues alongside some of the emo and like, hardcore and punk bands of the time and yeah. really taking that aesthetic, making patches and going in a way there. But we were still kind of these like nerds that barely knew how to play our instruments. <laughs> like half the guys on the team were like varsity athletes. It was just this really odd group of people, but we ended up playing together for six years, living together yeah. through college and acid rain revival you know, we recorded two full length records and just made the rounds of all the Providence venues station of course the living room the century lounge the met um mm-hmm. ocean mist and we just became this south county weird thing three guitars we had a, a bongo player at one point I mean, it's just <laughs> but it wasn't it, it wasn't jam music it was like alternative music so it's just really yeah interesting yeah and what were the years that the bands were active that band started in 2001 uh, actually, okay. 2000, actually, we recorded our first record in 2001 and really made it to like 2005. Um, we played, I think, very sparingly in 2006. By then, I had started to transition to another genre and and new creative collaborators, um, really through this, my best musical friend and someone I love dearly and played now for 20 years with Chris Knott, mm-hmm. uh, great, great Rhode Island music educator, songwriter, performer. And he and I met and started another band called Commas that yeah, right. was, he played drums and I would play guitar and then we'd swap off. And we ended up putting a, a band around that of auxiliary players and played some shows, did a lot of shows with Without Andy, an awesome indie band from Rhode Island at the time. And then realized after we all had kind of graduated college in 2006, we were like, 
we got to get the hell out of here. And we moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> the five of us, everyone quit their job, et cetera, and just packed up and moved to a loft in Brooklyn um, yeah. in 2006. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know, obviously, the, the focus here is on Rhode Island, but you know, it'd be remiss to talk about just what living in Brooklyn, you were there for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, you know, what was that experience like for you? You were in Bushwick living in lofts and this artist community and I mean, it seems that it's just an extremely, I mean, obviously that's where Silver Teeth started and we'll kind of get with that as well. But like, what was that um, experience like for you and, and, and just the development as an artist b- being in Brooklyn? Wow. I don't know how to even put it into words, what happened. Uh-huh. You know, uh, it was so, so real that I sometimes have to really check to make sure everything that that I believe happened really did happen. You know, it was almost it was so surreal and it actually is the more appropriate word. But you know, when I first got there, I had a day job and I was very super shy. I'm definitely a lot of people think, oh, this guy is like yelling and screaming on podcasts and all this stuff. So he must be like, <laughs> like I'm I'm definitely an introvert and and shy and 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 so forth. So it was really hard for me at first to adapt to the new environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but commas broke up after like a year, not even most of the oh, really? guys. Moved, okay. Most of the guys moved back. Oh, like after the move there. Right. Cause you were I mean, a band I'm, for a while. Right. And, um, yeah, we, we, yeah, right. Correct. Right. Cause we started that in 2004 and we made it to like 2007. So it was like a three year yeah. run. Um, but the band dissolved and I started to realize that I needed to, and kind of wanted to become like a solo artist. Yeah. And, through that experience in, in Brooklyn, Bushwick, Williamsburg, I started to um, write every day. I'd come home from work and I'd come to my little tiny like doghouse room in this loft and, <laughs> you know, and play an imaginary set. It's really? something I do to this day still. I'm, what do I, and it helps me write. I say, what's missing from this set? What's, what, what's wrong with the order? What's wrong with the, the, this, that, and the other? And so I started to do that and started to put together kind of a new version of myself um, as a solo artist. And I took that to these cafes, particularly this one cafe, Potion Cafe, that was in the loft building that I lived in, mm-hmm. in, in uh, on 248 McKibben Street in Bushwick. And started to finally go meet people and say hi, you know, and ju- or just sit there and be like, oh, who's this, like this clown sitting around, you know what I mean? Like whatever it was. Um, but slowly but surely, we had it started to have an open mic there. I used that open mic, which it totally changed my life. Candle lit, no PA, people from all over the world, songwriters, poets, hip hop or folk or punk or whatever, whatever you can imagine. And through that process, the competition that it created between people, because you wanted to break ground every Monday night when we did this, you wanted to be better than you were the previous week. But it also formed this family type of scenario. And through that Potion Cafe experience, some of the most important relationships I've ever had came through it. My music shifted into a whole new direction. Mm-hmm. I quit my job and started living on temp off temp jobs or random stuff or refereeing soccer or you know, the gig here, the gig there, and just became full on, just went full in. Um and, and just live that life playing DIY venues, playing legitimate venues in New York, eventually touring the country, 
and started just and, and eventually met this amazing group of musicians. Um, John Spiegler, a uh, great bass player, Dave Clem, an amazing guitar player, and Keith Robinson, an amazing drummer, and formed a permanent band to basically back me up and and make a yeah. run, which we we made a run at it for a few years. A lot of touring, a lot of business activity, yeah. <laughs> all that nonsense. Um, but it changed my life in ways I couldn't imagine how I could possibly do, no matter what other scenario I could put myself in. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I've thought about ex- any number of bands that have made it out of Rhode Island and have had success. And would I, would I trade places with any of them um, and have more popularity or anything like that in exchange for the experience I went through at these loft buildings in Brooklyn? And I would never do that. I don't think I could yeah. justify it. Yeah. And this, the the touring was under your under your name, under the like Bill Bartholomew name, is what you were talking about with that particular uh, yeah, era that, of of shows. Yeah, it was. We were we were performing as Bartholomew. Which okay. Was, um, the the guitar player's wife came up with. They, she was a former major label executive, and so there was a lot of input coming from th- those guys. Were heavy hitters. I mean, they had already been in groups that had that enormous success commercially and in the indie sense signed yeah. major deals. So I, I was in this environment where I was the kid 24 <laughs> years old, you know, with the songs and with this following of, you know, punks and hipsters and people living in Brooklyn. And that was the impetus and a physical space because I also had a, a DIY venue at one point that I was a, a one fourth owner of owner operator and then st- was throwing my own shows in these lofts. So I was okay. the promoter. I was the guy with the PA system, then the van. And it just created this environment that we were able to kind of, through this Bartholomew period, mm-hmm. balance both like, okay, well, we, we want to be a major label successful band. But at the same time, I kind of want to throw this like, projector into the crowd at the end of the song. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I'll be, I will have blood on my 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 hands from some something that occurred during the show so we're balancing both sides. <laughs> yeah yeah um but you had mentioned there was like a, a shift in the sound but uh like i guess before you even kind of move like with the band commas like what was what was that sound like and what was uh that band like you know like how would you describe that and what was um that community that that you were with and um that relationship with the other members wow that was a combination of experimental and trying to outdo ourselves almost to the, to a detriment um, in terms of shock value or, oh, okay. or whatever, but it was very songwriter oriented. Um, Chris and I, really all of us became, I mean, this is like 2004 and five. So Wilco, you know, you've got mm-hmm. still fresh Yankee hotel Foxtrot. You've got a ghost is born that just came out everything in that world. Shins, iron and wine, you know, broken social scene, that whole thing. Okay. Was happening. At the same time, we loved Neil Young and Crazy Horse. We, um, you know, I love Mike Patton and even heavier music. We're playing these, these lofts and playing with bands like the Vienna Grand before we moved to oh, yeah. Providence and before we moved to Brooklyn. So we're playing these shows with these like highly experimental bands. Mm-hmm. So we really went out of our way to 
be as creative and extreme as possible. The switching back and forth between drums. The when when Chris was performing a song, he was on guitar and I was on drums, and vice versa. Uh, okay. And the auxiliary players moved around between keyboards, guitars, and bass, xylophone, and just trying to create something that was really inspired by the moment in time. There, that that was a real big moment for indie rock, as as you know, is like mm-hmm. that 2004. Somebody recently told me, oh, it was it was when flowed on the modest mouse song became like a pop hit. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, that the genre changed and it became less of a, an escape for us that we would go to WRIU or the record store, you know, and, and kind of have our own world. And it became pop music. Indie yeah. became, indie became something that some guy who works at the place where you're temping, that's like went to Rutgers or something like that. <laughs> now he's into it and he's, yeah. Yes. So you had this blend. And so commas really tried to serve that moment in time, I think. And I'm, I'm very proud of what we learned. I think we could have done something even more spectacular if we, if we'd had the, um, a little bit more stamina. Yeah. We came close, I think, to like really finding a, a zone that, that could have been that next level. I'm to blame. It's me, I swear it, that's their coursing through your veins And exit slowly in the form Calculated scars Alone After Commas had ended, um, World on a Wire was in ostensibly Sony Studios. We, you know, my friend was a, my friends had just left their Sony and were producers there, Grammy winners, and they bought Sony Studio C and moved it to their own place. And I was like oh. their first client, you know, and they're <laughs> wow. and they're new. So we spent two weeks, uh, life changing relationship with a producer, yeah, relationship with Pro Tools. Mm-hmm. understanding I learned about how to really make something happen in the studio during that process. Um, and then wild colors was the follow-up, which had, to me, it was more of a, it, it could have had a, a better result. Had we gone back to the studio, I tried to do it on my own at that point. And it was, uh, okay. you know, I worked with this great producer, Rob Gariglia, but it was still a home recording. Mm-hmm. Um, but those two records um, the Delhi magazine gave a lot of really positive reviews to, which at the time, especially was a really relevant publication mm-hmm. and that, that helped get me into a position where I was accept, where I could be reasonably connected with these sort of higher up on the rank of the musical yeah. ranking, uh, guys that became Bartholomew. Okay. So who was performing on those EPs? Was that was that all of you? Um, cause I know obviously you're playing drums and guitar and, you know, producing Actually, now, or who else was on those recordings? Yeah, Chris not played guitar uh, drums on the first record. Um, I had a hired gun, this guy, Keith McCray, who was like a gospel drummer playing the second oh, one. Yeah. And it was a hodgepodge of friends and hired guns. Um, yeah. With me doing all the guitars and, 
and another major collaborator of mine, Quentin Gelderman, who played an Acid Rain revival on bongos. He came back into my life musically at that point so that you'll hear wow. throughout these records, percussion, bongos, djembe, all this kind of like crazy stuff that makes no sense almost with the songs, but we put in there <laughs> and it gave it this like very specific identity. Yeah. Especially on stage, the energy. At one point I had an extra percussionist. So I had the drums and two percussion players on stage with just bass and guitar. So like three guys just hammering <laughs> in these like rules. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and it never, ever translated in recording. We could never, that's a huge regret of mine. It's like, if that, if we were better, like if I was better, we could have tried to record that live, that music live. And I think you would then have something much more representative of what yeah. it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely, I mean, from seeing you and uh, knowing you, but even just reading reviews that you as a performer uh, is, is a key piece to your music that you were just known for your stage performance and your, um, you know, everything that you put into it. So yes, it, it can obviously be a tricky thing of moving that visual experience to an audio one. Um, but, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, that, and that's so interesting because that's exactly how I see myself now. I think I've gotten to a point where today in all the things I do, you know, I'm a performer, you know, at the mm -hmm. end of the day, I don't think I'm the greatest songwriter ever or the definitely not the greatest guitarist or musician or whatever. I mean, I think I've gotten something out of all those things and I have something to share that's worth people's time. But, but that ultimately it's all about being a performer and connecting with people and, yeah, exactly. and serving that role. Yeah. Um, but I mean, just as a quick, you know, I want to get into it deeper with what you're doing in media and podcasting and as a journalist and, and, um, you know, you're on PBS, you're on WPRO and radio and everything like that. Like, you know, you are making this incredible impact with what you're doing and you're connecting with people in a very, very meaningful way. Even just for me personally, like I see your podcast as an, an incredible resource for me as just being an informed, it. like an informed voter. I live in Providence, an informed voter here in Rhode Island, you know, so, uh, do you see like a, a you know, a broadening of your purpose away from just music, but like what you're doing and, and communicating and connecting with people in, in a, you know, political way and a social justice way and everything that you're doing? Yeah, I do now. I really mm -hmm. do. And when I really think about it and I go back to my life, even in middle school or something like that, I cared about civics and history and music. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I was in AP history and was like in joke classes for every every other, well, most of the other <laughs> topics. Yeah, um, yeah. In college, I cared about political science, journalism, and history. And, and more than anything, when I was in Brooklyn, you know, I became part of that whole movement in those cafes and DIY venues and mm -hmm. meeting people from all over the world was this nonstop conversation. and. Mm -hmm digging into Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and, and that, the, those kind of generic names, but then going super deep into like the anarchist zines. And, yeah. and also one of the most important days of my career, I think was one of those open mics we were having and it was right as Obama was rising. And, um, I had like painted this American flag with a cross on it and wrote, yes, we can kind of suggesting like Obama still is, 
carrying the Christian right with him or something like that, whatever. So it was like turned into this whole conversation. And this kid stood up and I remember he had red hair. He was wearing an LL Bean fleece and he was from New Hampshire. I'd never seen him before. Mm-hmm. And he got up on the stage and he gave an impassioned presentation about why Ron Paul was the answer and libertarianism was the answer to all of our woes. And here I am in this like loft with everyone thinking very, very progressively, you know, mm-hmm. way, you know, every gender representation, continent, experience level. I mean, <laughs> you name it. This is the world we have here. And very much so progressive, and if not further than that, in terms of where everyone was thinking. But to hear someone logically lay out an, an opposing viewpoint and create this debate where people were yelling and it turned into this very lively debate um, was such a critical moment. And it, it came from that same stage that the, the, the AKA Potion Cafe, as it was officially known, that I'd also found myself as an artist. And mm-hmm. it made me realize, wow, you know, that's, that's something that is really missing. Do I agree with everything this guy's saying? Definitely not. But at the mm-hmm. same time, this guy's not a moron. And maybe I'm not exactly right about everything I'm thinking about here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, kind of circling back to music, you know, in Brooklyn, uh, you know, as, as we mentioned, that's where Silver Teeth started, which, yeah. um, you know, probably some, some people that, that do know that you play music in addition to what you're, what else you're doing are probably more familiar with, with that band name. Um, but yeah, can you talk about the start of, of that band and, um, and you know, what, what that's all about. Yeah. You know, with the Bartholomew outlet, it was, or outfit, it was an outlet as well, but <laughs> it, the, you know, it, it, we were having a lot of, of good things happen in the DIY independent world, touring, getting decent press. Mm-hmm. And I was proud of the songs and the process. I had a studio in Brooklyn that was, we would go, we literally meet there every day, every day wow, of the cool. week. 10 o'clock in the morning, meet up, work on songs, work on Pro Tool sessions, make videos, send stuff out to the media, full nine to five job. And then I'd go referee soccer games at night or do some other stupid drive delivery (laughs) truck or whatever to like pay just enough to like, and I was sleeping in the studio as well. So I had had a bed in my practice space studio and I just got super burnt out and we weren't getting the return on investment that we wanted mm-hmm. to get from like placements and, you know, uh, people promising, you know, I think at one point we had a meeting with like Apple music and they're like, Oh, you're going to be like our featured artists for the month of June or something. And we're going to give you a big push. And it just, none of that, nothing in that world really ever happened. I fell asleep under Manhattan stars.
we decided, uh, Dave Clem and I, my guitar player from there, started this group called The Golden Age of Transit, in which we just recorded these wacky songs um, and in the studio, no expectation of commercial success, just the two of us. I would play a, a kick drum and a snare drum only. The kick drum both both hit with mallets. So right hand kick drum, left hand snare drum, wow. overdub that, super sloppy. And, you know, one of the, I remember crying, both of us crying during the making of this music because it was such a release of this intense experience of being in this Bartholomew project. And concurrent with this, the loft building started to change. A lot of the venues started to turn into cafes. And now you got some guy in a Corona cowboy hat playing cornhole or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah. Things started to shift. The people started to move away get priced out, move mm -hmm. further and further down the train away from Williamsburg. Whole Foods is here. All yeah. that was happening. And so we did this golden age project, which was more of a studio effort. But with that, um, Gabriella Rossi, who at the time was, I was dating a uh, great singer, mm -hmm. visual artist, performer who had moved into my loft in, in, in that I was living in, 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 uh, in Brooklyn from Brazil and had these, big dreams she started to sing with the golden age and that go as the golden age faded away i found myself not sure of what i was going to do and i started to book myself as solo bill bartholomew and mm -hmm. i got a couple of good tours i opened up for this great band streets of laredo that eventually signed to like the strokes manager and like a major label deal and bird courage another awesome band that really did very very well in brooklyn um so i started to have things going as a solo artist yeah, but wasn't making any money. So I started busking on the, the train platforms. And oh, all right. I realized that when Gabriella and I went down together, rather than just me there, you know, here's who's this white kid with long hair, you know, wearing like a cowboy shirt. She and I would go down there and we'd make money. Um, okay. Singing songs like Jackson, you know, like uh, country songs. Yeah. Like, like traditional country songs, but in this punk, Brooklyn sort of way. Yeah, yeah. But because we we were had this relationship and, and we may have even been engaged at this point, um, we were like, we cannot, we're, we're doing our own separate things. Like she, she sang on the golden age thing. That was fun. We're doing this subway stuff to make some money, but ultimately our music careers are going to be separate projects. There's no way we're going to live together, be in a relationship and have a band together. Can't happen. <laughs> It'll destroy us. Impossible. But Somehow, some way, we just started to bring original songs to the subway, work them out, and go, oh, okay. And we started playing as Billy and the letter N, Gabby. And okay, <laughs> met and doing like tours like this. Um, and, you know, short tours and realizing, you know, all right, New York, we're living way away from people. Now we were married and we're, we're living in this tiny apartment and just a, just a tough existence, making no money. I'm paying for things with, I'm bringing quarters to the cafe or the falafel shop, you know, two months behind on rent minimum, working all these stupid jobs, drowning, you know, in, in the, the version of Brooklyn we were in. Yeah. And we started to think, oh, well, let's do this Billy and Gabby shtick, but why don't, why don't we go to like Rhode Island and like play those like bars that we see 
the people on Facebook saying um, that I would said, I would never do that. I'll never be like a cover artist ever. <laughs> let's do it. Like, let's charge money and let's just try it. And yeah. it won't be so painful because we're doing these like classic country covers and there's like a big wink and a smirk to it as well. And so we started doing that, coming up to Rhode Island on the weekends, playing bars, making more money in that weekend than we would make in Brooklyn at that point in time. Yeah. And started to develop the infrastructure for a New York to Rhode Island pipeline that included Connecticut and through this money making process of yeah. playing, but also singing together. Do you remember what bars you were playing or how you even got into them? Like, was it some, did you still have some connections up here? I was, I still had some connections, but we, we were playing in New Haven at cafe uh, nine. And okay. I, saw, yeah, I yeah. saw a Rhode Island license plate out in the, out there and, and these guys were playing Frisbee. And I was like, yo, what's up, guys? You guys from Providence? And they're like, <laughs> no, we're from Newport. Like, Newport? Really? And at, for me, Newport, you know, I'd go to the festivals and like my cousin would take me to like the tall ships or something when I was a little kid, school yeah. field, field trip to the mansions, but never saw it as a cultural mecca. Mm-hmm. And um, I met the band that was playing was Castle, but principally Dave Passifume. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mickey met, Woods and yeah. Mickey Woods exactly. Yeah, yeah. And met him on the street, and he was like, "Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you guys just, uh, just you guys come up, and we'll set you up at the gas lamp, and probably get you guys like five hundred, five hundred, or you know, at least three hundred to play, and play one eighty when you're up here, and um, you know. So we we started coming up, opening up for Castle. Yeah. And during those shows, we were like. Well, let's do the originals. Why not? We're here playing now. It's a legitimate. We're like, we have a guaranteed pay. So who cares if we play? Let's just do the originals. Yeah. Let's just this is that. as Billy and Billy and Gabby. As like Billy and Gabby. Up. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And now we're in this, we're plugged into Rhode Island, falling in love with Newport, realizing that there's this incredible music scene and art scene there, mm-hmm. especially around Broadway. Yeah. And, um, and then and new, we went back to New York one day and we were like, all right, let's just do it. Let's do a band. And we brought in Keith Robinson, my drummer from Bartholomew Mm -hmm. and my drummer today as well and presented him with a bunch of songs. And we made that first silver teeth EP Yeah, came up with a name at uh, Chris, Chris Knott's mom's wedding. Actually, we're like debating like name options. And it actually came from, um, in a lot of ways, it came from an interest in a wonderful song called sea of teeth by sparkle horse. That's what that was kind of the, so we drew on that song that we both loved. Uh, now we're, like I said, we're married. We start this band and it kind of worked. We got a lot of great press from it. And yep. we came up to, to Rhode Island for a show. It was called Leisure Fest. Dave Passifume put it on in a diner right before Thanksgiving 2015. And at this point, I'm depressed. New York's expensive. All my friends have moved. Things aren't going in, a good, in the way they need to. Mm-hmm. Um, played Leisure Fest with all these great Newport and Providence bands. And I went out in the street and I like was super emotional. I was like, we're moving here. Like, mm-hmm. let's do it. Imme- like, I'll go to the eight. Let's find a place now. <laughs> and we're like, we're, we have to move to Newport. That's the, that's where it's happening. Yeah. And so Silver Teeth, very early on, right after recording our, our record, moved up to, to Newport and kind of established ourselves there. Um, brought in Tom Berglund, a local drummer to work with us and started 
living in Newport and touring based out of there. And yeah, okay, yeah, what an experience, you know, what a and this little city that that I love so much and that that I'm sad to see is also gentrifying and and being kind of destroyed by Airbnb and other mm-hmm. very greedy operations. But um, it was this magical time, sort of a Diet Coke version of what I experienced at the lofts in Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, where where else were you playing when you kind of were there? You know, when when you were living there. Well, we were playing. We played Aurora. We started to play the Columbus, getting yep. a lot of Columbus theater stuff. We were playing Parlor, Poor Judgment, quite a bit. Um, the Ocean Mist, Parlor and Newport, correct. Parlor and Newport, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, what what a name! I mean, come on, somebody should have flipped a coin there. Let's go, yeah. <laughs> or, or just give it to Providence. But yeah. <laughs> but I mean, come on, but. You know, we 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 started to tour. We played, had great relationships in Burlington, so we could go up and play a couple of shows and crash this great band, Clever Girls, up there. Cool. Boston, the Magnolia Loft in Somerville, eventually City Winery and um, uh, the uh, Middle East downstairs. Yep. Um, and then in New York, things started to build. Knitting Factory, Bowery Presents at Mercury Lounge, Shea right. Stadium, yeah. you know, we by being based in Newport, we actually be, became more successful in New York than we could have possibly been by being there, because wow. we would take the trip in multiple times a month, put the posters up, staple them up, tape them up, meet people, yeah, hustle, 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 go on the subway, busk on the subway, and then do these fairly big shows that we were able to get because of the press we were getting for for our first record. So yeah. Who was doing press for you then? Were you doing your own PR? We're doing our own PR. I learned, yeah, I learned so much about that through, I'd always done that. I'd always done my own PR. Everything was DIY. Mm -hmm. You know, I I put up thousands of posters all over Brooklyn, thousands of stickers, mailed out hundreds and hundreds of CDs. Um, But during Silver Teeth, Gabriella and I worked as a team. Mm -hmm. And when we put the record out, we literally set up a desk across from each other and just went to town for like a week, 10 hour days, 12 hour days at times, email this person, email that person. Okay. This, this magazine, this booking agent, this kid on Facebook that says he's got a band in Portland, Maine, you know, whatever it was just a thousand miles an hour, um, doing it that way. And and Mm -hmm. that's something that has obviously fed into the whole Bartholomew town operation. Yeah. Just getting it done, you know, (laughs) definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, with that, you've got that uh, three-song EP that is, I mean, it's fantastic. Um, some other singles, the uh, 
Armin Killers. You have a video for that, which is super rad. People should check that out. Um, and then you did a recording at at the Columbus uh, for Shoes. Yep. Um, that was with uh, Jeff and Ben, correct? From that, that was, yeah, exactly with those guys. And Colleen Hennessy, uh, formerly of Commas, um, was the director of photography for that video. She also is the director of photography now for, and has been for the last decade, for the Newport Folk and Jazz Festivals. All right. And, uh, and my guy, Chris Knott, playing harp and <laughs> keyboard on those Columbus sessions there as yeah. well. So, and of course, then, you know, you feel like you're like the Columbus thing. And that, that's all we could, I'm sure that could be a whole nother podcast, like in and of itself is like the Columbus moment in Rhode Island, that moment with the, the low anthem. And, you know, I, I, I know that there's, there's been negative things that have come out of there of recent and in terms of like misbehavior or Grace, gross misconduct by certain people. I get that. You know, you look at mm-hmm. think about Joe Fletcher and those guys. You know, yeah. and and uh, but at the time they had a magnet around them. They had a, an aura mm-hmm. that suggested this is where you need to be. If you're if you're a part of New England's music community, this is the center yeah. of it. Yeah. And so we so to get to a point where we're making videos there, I was like, oh, this is pretty freaking awesome. Here we are. <laughs> we're like, you know, we're we're in a place that I I feel excited about. Yeah, yeah. It's a magical place. And it was, I think it was a Bob Dylan tribute night that they were having there that, that Gabrielle and I came up from New York to go to. And mm-hmm. it was standing room only by the time we drove up. And we we're like, and you just felt that energy. And it was similar to that leisure fest in Newport mm-hmm. where, you know, I was like, this is missing from New York right now. And we know what this is because we've had it through our DIY McKibben Street period. Mm-hmm. We know what this connection feels like. We know what this feeling is. And it's a magical thing. It's not permanent. It'll, and Tom and Sean are amazing. And I hope that when we reopen, I think they're going to they're gonna be able to do some incredible things. But um, it, yeah, it was just like, and being able to perform there uh, a number of times, headlining yeah. our own shows there. I'm super, I look back on those shows with like a, a lot of amazement because it is, like you say, it's just how is this space available to do what we're all doing mm-hmm. in this period in time where that thing could be some, you know, Joe Palino could buy that thing and turn it into like <laughs> the law offset, the Columbus theater, or, you know, Columbo, yeah. you know, Columbo's, <laughs> uh, you know, the loss. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but no, by the way, that thing has 1,492 seats. Isn't that interesting? The Columbus. Oh, does it? I did yeah, not know that. I found that out. It's, it's something else. I wonder if they'll change the name. I've always wondered that like, with all yes. the big push and stuff, you know, is that going to happen? I know it's, it, I'm, I always wonder that. And I, I don't know that they should either. You know, I'm not sure. Like, does it create more debate to have it there? I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't, yeah, really put too much into that, that particular, your, your piece of it. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely, it is definitely something to think about. So, right. um, yeah. but you know, you have a new EP coming out June 11th, um, yep. Bats EP. Can you talk about that record and, you know, a little bit of the the process um, of, of putting that together? Was it kind of done over, over COVID or was it something prior to that? Um, and, you know, who's playing on it? I know that you've done some other uh, solo songs where it's like, you're, you're doing everything from performing and producing and recording and everything like that. But, um, you know, what went into this particular EP? 
Yeah. So things changed a lot in, I guess, 2017 or so when Gabriella got accepted to RISD to paint Rhode Island School of Design. Okay. And um, we kept the band going. You know, I started Bartholomew Town around that time and we kept the band going. We did a lot of amazing shows and it was an advantage to have be plugged into the RISD community at that point. A lot of great shows at RISD. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it got to a point where we made our second record. Things did not go well at all. We worked with an amazing mixer, John Aiello, who's done everything from Kurt Vile and Sonic Youth, Yola Tango, Dino, you know, Dinosaur Jr., and just didn't come out how we wanted it to. And I got physically sick during the process. And that was in a lot of ways, that was sort of the end of the modern iteration of Silver Teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, she and I decided at some point that we were, let's try just doing our own things, which she's working on something right now. And from what I've heard, it's, it's really cool. Um, mm-hmm. excited about it. Um, and maybe, you know, I could see us coming back together and doing something after this period. And I don't know what it would sound like or be like, or who would mm-hmm. play with us, but, but yeah, so I kind of, I kind of realized that my music career quote unquote was in my own hands it, it, about a year or two ago, I guess. Then the pandemic hit, and I had still written songs, still still was picking up my guitar, even through the whole Bartholomew Town world that I was now immersed in. Yeah. Uh, but it, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't think I touched my guitar from March until like the end of July. Mm-hmm. I was totally removed from music. And still sparingly over the course of the summer last year and even sparingly in the fall. But then at some point I started to work on songs again and I started to write songs. It's, I remember it was snowing out when I wrote two of the songs that are on the bat EP. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, this there's something here. There's something fresh. There's still something to say. It harkens back to my period in, in the cafes and, yeah, that sounds like something like oh, here's Bob Dylan to the cafe or whatever. It's like you know, sounds so stupid, but you know, the, certainly you know the the DIY venues, I'll say, including this cafe, Potion Cafe, mm-hmm. and it, it harkened back to a, something there. Um, and I was writing in, and I, I I understood recording at it, but every attempt to home record in the past had been a total failure for me. You know, it just didn't work. Don't have the the gear, the patience. Um, to mix, you know, some truck backs up right when you get the magical take, the local take, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. or whatever, some, something happens. So I, I you know, I, I didn't really want to do it, but, but I realized that, well, what happened? What, what do I have to lose? You know, let me just try to do a new system in which I do three songs at a time. I do them on my own. I record, they get the click track, record in my podcast space uh, yep. here in Providence, do an acoustic guitar. I mock up a drum idea on my electronic drums, send it to Keith Robinson in Brooklyn. He records the drum, sends it back to me. I record electric guitars and keyboards and vocals, email it to Chris Knott in Pawtucket. He adds a bass, mm-hmm. send it back to me. I add some more harmonies, megaphone vocals, so on and so forth. And then I sent it to uh, Brad Krieger at Big Nice Studio to mix it. And literally like four hours later, he called me. He was like, yeah, this thing was pretty much already mixed it kind of mixed itself it's it's done it's like here here we go it was yeah easy, yeah you know and and so i've developed this system and i love 
the way this record sounds. I, I mm-hmm. think it's my favorite sounding record I've ever done. And it, you can hear that just enough of a home vibe and just enough vulnerability. But it also, because it kind of got boosted at Big Nights, it holds up. And yeah. that's really exciting. It's a space that I finally found. It's a budget, highly budget-friendly way of doing things. And so I foresee making music, recorded music, in this format for at least the next year or two mm-hmm. before, you know, unless, I mean, look, if someone comes along and is like, you know, the, 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 um, the old story, like the agent pops out of the alleyway. Hey kid, <laughs> hey kid I got, uh, I'm going to get, you know, Frank Sinatra's there yeah. for some reason. You know, when like, you do in the studio going? stat, you know, exactly, we've, got, right. you've got the perfect band for you. Just you <laughs> got know. a limo picking me up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, short of that happening, um, I'll probably just keep doing this. And mm-hmm. something that podcasting taught me about music, I was in Brazil uh, of, uh, last year, the year before, mm-hmm. not last year, obviously during the pandemic. And I'd been several times when I was out, I was outside, like uh, it was like raining. I was like having a smoke or something. I was like looking at, I was like, what if I do music like podcasting? Like don't take each song, like it matters. And when you're in the zone, Yes, this is the most important thing in the world. You're gonna you want it to sound as great as possible. You want the inter- the interview to be as great as possible. Get it to as many people as possible. But then you move on to the next episode, and that yeah, episode's yeah. there for people. What if I do music like that instead of being like, all right, we've got these three Silver Teeth songs. This is it for the next year, and we're gonna push it to everywhere. Mm-hmm. What if music was like on to the next one, and it has released a tremendous amount of stress and pressure that I have felt for for my entire music career of like being like, you have to deliver right now. This is it. If you don't do it, you're a failure and you wasted a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're saying, it's just, there's all these new opportunities and and breaking away from the typical cycle that, um, I mean, like, like the vastness of what can be done. And I mean, obviously what comes to mind is, the, probably the most popular one is the postal service where, yeah. you know, they're just able to like, well, we can just, we don't actually need to even be in the same room and we can uh, just create this. And, and obviously with digital technology and uh, you know, services that are out there, like you can, it doesn't even take that much to get music up there. And, and it's probably right. even going to be more beneficial to you um, in this like streaming digital world where, they're looking for just new things and, and, you know, what else is like the next, uh, the next piece that's up there and, and, and new info, you know, new things rather than just like, Oh, you've got just a couple of songs that have been kind of static there for a year or so, you know? So, yes. Um, yeah. You know, know, it also helps that certainly Keith Robinson and I played together in Bartholomew and then he was, the original drummer of silver teeth and our, and our, you know, certainly our best recorded work was with him. Uh, mm-hmm. It sounded dig it at Tom Berglund, just how, you know, the process, we, we had a tough process recording the second couple of efforts. Uh, but he and I, you know, uh, known, known each other and we know each other's instincts. Chris, not, I mean, he's, there's, you know, the guy and I've been playing music together for 20 years. And, and so when I send him a track, it's like, well, he knows, what 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 is a what is a bill song call for on bass? Just like you yeah. know, so there's this extra level of where yeah, I miss the hangout and the like, okay, cool guys, you ready to go? Like, <laughs> do the music now? Like, 
okay, let's just like, guys, we'll hang out a little bit more. Okay, cool. Like, I missed that part of it. But the pr- productivity wise, you know, it took me about three or four weeks to do this record. And I'm, uh, and a record EP, and I'm, I'm excited about it. It's, yeah, I, I'm happy, you know, like I'm, I'm excited to be doing this podcast very much so. Uh, and, and anything that comes out of this is great, but I'm, I'm really proud of the music. I like to listen to it and I like to play it for people, uh, because it's the goal isn't to write a hit. You know, I've had some songs that have gotten placed in the past and all of those have come through like random. Some guy saw me at Rockwood music hall in New York and his brother is making a horror movie or okay. Whatever. So I've had songs in film. I've, I've had songs on um, like MTV shows and stuff like that. And yeah, the checks are nice when they come in. You know, of course, like you feel like, yes, <laughs> I am a professional musician. <laughs> like I am a real songwriter. Like, yeah, yeah. No one can take it away from me. But then it's like, well, yeah. But when do you drive around and listen to those songs? Like, have you ever like raced in like Walter White? like pulling out of uh, a scene and breaking bad to like someone's house to like say, yo, check it out. This sounds awesome. And we did it ourselves without spending a penny on recording. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? like, and, and that's why I'm so excited about bats is because it opens up this new door to me that I think will um, allow me to just like create without that extra stress and burden of being like, this is the moment and I have to step up. I want to, I want the, I want people to love it, but I, if they don't, it doesn't, like if uh, Motif Magazine writes, you know, Bill Bartholomew's rec- new EP Bats absolutely sucks, period. And they just publish that. Okay, I, don't re- I definitely don't care, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you were kind enough to share with me uh, to preview it. And no, man, it's, it's, it's solid. I mean, personally, I love the song a lot to be free for, man. Like that, it's catchy, man. And like it's only been like a day that since I've like heard this record and that, that song is, is in my head. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I love what you're doing. I mean, it, it, and I would say that, yeah, if anyone's been a fan of what you've done, heard your solo stuff, heard silver teeth, it's not this like incredible departure that yeah someone's going to say like, what the hell is bill doing with this? You know, like it sounds like what you would write, but, um, but there does seem like there's a little bit more freedom with it. There's a lot of, different vocal effects, a lot of layering of vocals, um, like uh, using your voice as a, as an instrument or to add different dynamics, like how you sing. So not even like the effects, but just like, it seems like how you sing, you know, it just seems authentic to, to who you are as an artist. Um, so I appreciate that a lot, you know, and I've collected uh, being a big Mike Patton fan in high school. That Mm -hmm. was a huge thing for me. And I never really did it until, I mean, in Acidrine Revival, at the very beginning, I had a little bullhorn and I would, you know, some girl would be in the crowd at the talent show and I'd jump off the stage and yell, sing the song (laughs) into the megaphone, into her face, you know, or whatever. But but actually using those as a tool, I use a physical Radio Shack megaphone and a harmonica mic plugged into a delay pedal plus uh, a regular mic. So I have, and I'll use that on stage as well going forward. So I'll have, I have these three vocal setups and it is exactly that. It's like, oh, the voice can be an instrument in and of mm-hmm. itself that doesn't, you know, you don't have to, and also doing different voicing, singing in falsetto or in these like characters. Um, mm-hmm. And some of the new stuff I'm, I'm going to put out has more of that like character voice, almost like I'm doing an impression while singing. So mm-hmm. 
I appreciate yeah. that a lot, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, was it challenging though, like in this new, like endless production kind of phase, you know, like, was it, was it difficult to know how many tracks to put on this or how much to uh, like, should you add another guitar? Should there be another keyboard part to this? Because you can, right. and there isn't, I mean, you know, cause it is a different thing when you're, when you're in the studio and there's a, a clock that you're punching or there's, you know, certain deadlines, you're like, Oh no, this is, this will be fine. And it could go the other way as well. Like I wish I could have added more of this stuff, but um, was that a challenge for you or did you feel that it, it kind of hit in the right spot? I think it mostly came together. It helped that I had booked and paid for the mixing dates oh, okay. before I, before I laid down a track. I, I think I started tracking like March 29th and right before I, I did. I called Brad Big Nice and and was like, "Hey, uh, what do you have at the beginning of May?" And he was like, "May fourth and fifth sound good." I was like, "Okay, I'm Venmoing you now." So it's done. You have to have the stems printed. This record has to be done, and in Brad's inbox, ten yeah. o'clock in the morning by that date. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to take X number of days for the drums to get done, and Chris Knott's going to need time for the bass. So I really only had probably two weeks of, of recording time, mm-hmm. and I. I have developed, I think, a very efficient creative process through the other stuff I've been doing now in terms of knowing like, okay, you're in Pro Tools. Yes, don't be lazy, but let's do three vocal takes, three acoustic guitar takes, three electric guitar takes, hit the keyboard in MIDI and fix it after. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and then let's, let's call it a day. Cause we've got to go do this other thing for the PBS show or something. Yeah. And yeah. so working in that way and doing limited takes and comping on as I was going along and being just building note by note, focusing rather than on adding new tracks, instead adding to an existing track. Like, oh, that lyric sucks. I could do that. That that doesn't make any sense. That's that's that needs to be improved. Okay, well, what it should it be? Let me think about that today. And then tomorrow at 1015, I've gone till 11. And during that time, I'm gonna add this new lyric. So it was mm-hmm. more of that. The original tracks were very quick to come because. I kind of just plotted it out as I wanted to sound basically like a guy with an acoustic, an electric player, a drummer and a bass, and a little bit of keyboards and ambient guitar. But no, I, I think I could have gone overboard if I hadn't booked with Brad. And the, you know, <laughs> That's sudden, smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here, here comes, you know, I've got the xylof- the metal bell xylophone. All of a sudden that's on there, you know, some yeah. 50 claps and stuff. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, you were talking about you've got you know, some of this gear that you've, that you brought into this recording for your performance. And, uh, you've got a show June 18th at dusk, um, with, uh, Bert and Harley and, um, Ziggy Nardust. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. You talk about, uh, you know, you know, shout out that show. What, what can people expect if they come in and see you? Well, certainly similarly to, to booking, the, the mixing dates, I also booked uh, basically a release party. I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> like we're also not going to fool around and send this to, you know, we're not going to shop it around. We're just going to, as soon as they got the masters, we'll get them up on the back end so they can be released on Spotify and we'll just go mm-hmm. get Mark Michelson to make a poster and see you later. Um, th- this will be, I, I love the group. It's Chris not on bass and Dylan Harley of a number of projects. Thursday night, first Thursdays of the Columbus, he had his own variety show, WHEM. Um, he was in the Horseside Men. He's a great solo artist in and of himself. He's got this new gypsy jazz group that's going to close out the show. Um, 
amazing drummer. So he's playing drums. It's trio. Mm-hmm. I play electric guitar mostly. Use the the three different vocal sounds, and we're we're gonna. I think it's gonna be pretty smoking. Like uh, to borrow like a like something you'd hear at a bar right there. You know? <laughs> Those guys are smoking, smoking but a, show, man. Smoking show, that's right. <laughs> but I think it, I think that's what it is. It's like really hitting the tunes, um, the tune, new stuff, Brit stuff that's not been recorded. A little bit of Silver Teeth songs, um, and uh, and I'm I'm really psyched about that. I think that show is going to be a lot of fun. And then Ziggy, drummer of the Z Boys, just an all around mega talent. Um, somebody I've even taken drum lessons from in, in yeah, yeah. different intervals and is, so he's going to open it up and outdoors at dusk in the backyard should be great. Cool. I'm, I mean, I'm so psyched to be back. You know, I didn't want to push it, you know, with COVID mm-hmm. taking it as I took it so seriously. And the thought of doing a show didn't seem possible in January or February. Yeah. And I think we've done a great job roll out here. And just overall, we're yeah, we can totally do an outdoor show in the middle of June at this point. Like that, that to me feels like that's safe, and and for that, I'm extremely grateful. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, where can people check out your music, or where will uh, bats be available? Yeah, Spotify, Apple Music. It's um, it'll be up there on and Bandcamp. All BillBartholomew.bandcamp.com, or just search on Spotify. Mm-hmm. And all over social media, Twitter and Instagram at Bill Bartholomew or on Facebook. It's all at Bill Bartholomew on, on the platforms. And yeah, I'm looking forward to just dropping that Spotify link. Mm-hmm. Just like, here it is. Ta-da, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go nuts. Like I'm not going to, you will not get a personal message from me in your Facebook uh, inbox, you know, uh, or, or anything like that. Like I'm not going to spam people, but yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna just gonna drop it and see what happens. Yeah, you know, just like the podcast. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I appreciate you doing this interview to to promote that. Um, so it means a lot. But uh, is there anything that I may have missed that you wanted to bring up with with your career? That that's a pretty incredible overview. You know, the future is <laughs> unknown. I don't know what's going to happen with Silver Teeth. You know, Gabriella is going to Yale um, to paint. For her master's degree, starting in a two-year program in September, mm-hmm. um, and the nimbleness of being a solo artist is very good with everything else I've got going on with Bartholomew Town and and PBS and even WPRO. Yeah, so I I, I could see that staying, but I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I don't. Mm-hmm. We, we might we might have another Silver Teeth run in us, and I missed that moment. You know, as great as being a solo artist is for a lot of reasons, um, there's nothing like being in a band. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the, those those are relationships that I think if you played like college basketball, or if you served in the Marines or mm-hmm. something like that. Not to draw a comparison, you can rank them how you choose, but you you form bonds there. Absolutely, that, yeah. That are the hardest breakups in my life without question, having had relationships with, with partners that exceeded five years now on three occasions um, and having other very co- close partners in my intimate partners, um, the hardest breakups have always been with band members, some of mm-hmm. which I'm not over yet, you know, and, and I don't know that I'll ever be. I try to think about those, those people 
and and uh, what we went through, mm-hmm. and and not dwell on what could have been or this move or that move or whatever it was. But you know, bands are such a magical thing, and so underappreciated because you know I once heard Jim Leland, a, the Major League Baseball manager in an interview, like someone like questioned like his move or something like that when he was managing the Tigers about some, oh, you should have brought this guy in as a starting pitcher. Yeah. He said, you have no idea how difficult it is to win a major league game. Like you you could never do it. Whoever you are, you you could never do it. The same is true for bands. You have no idea unless you've been in a band, you have no idea how hard it is to go from the point of an idea to a record, a show, Mm -hmm. or, or even more so a brand. And you know that. Um, but, yeah, yeah. but, but, but it's underappreciated by a lot of people. A lot of people, when they you hear, oh, you're a musician, they think, oh, you're just like doing drugs and like laying around <laughs> all day. And like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's a show time yet, man. Let's go. Mm-hmm. It's like, it is the hardest work I've ever done in my life. And the, the most important relationships, um, have come out of that experience. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you share that and, and yeah, just trying to shed a little bit of light. Yeah. And I can completely identify where it's, it's a lot of work. And a lot of the discussions that I have had with people is that there is that um, thing that you can't really put a finger on of what makes a musician do this type of stuff. Cause it, it doesn't make any logical sense as I'm broke, uh, you know, sleeping in the back of a van in the middle of the country. And, uh, and then, you know, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day and uh, hoping that we can sell enough CDs just to get enough gas to get to the next show. And, but then getting back, you know, I lived with Anthony from Barn Burning for a while and we had this big map. We'd get back and we just start looking at the map and start booking another tour because we yes. have to just get back at it. And we like, well, it's going to take a couple, you know, like another couple of months before we go. So we're, you know, when we get back from the spring tour, we're booking like the late summer, you know, fall tour and, and just doing that and then playing shows around town. And, and, you know, it's just, um, there's just a lot that goes into it. And I don't know. I mean, it, it is what it is. It's, it's what we've, I guess, in a way kind of signed up for but it it does it can be tough uh when the person that isn't a musician uh doesn't not that they need to give that much respect or that much time but when it, it seems that it's not even valued any anymore you know that oh, they'll, yeah. they'll they'll take it for the enjoyment and that's good and i, oh, I like that beat or whatever but it, i mean this past year it really kind of put a spotlight on that of like what entered you know what people do for entertainment and um, you know, the, the lack of live music and, you know, so hopefully some of that stiff stuff can kind of shift a little bit, but, but yeah, it's, it's an incredible experience. I'm with you. Uh, it was, uh, of just having these, these deep bonds with people that I've toured with and played in bands with. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I love everyone that I've, uh, played with and, uh, yeah, it, it's just something that, uh, can't be taken away. I guess that's, that's the key thing. Um, so. That's right. That's right. It's it's one of those things that's definitely written in the stars, you know, and, and the people you meet along the way too, you know, we I've lost a lot of friends along the way, in, especially in Brooklyn and, and even here in Rhode Island, you know, whether it's from suicide, drugs, mm-hmm. COVID, you know, but music 
and those experiences, you know, it's very cheesy to say, well, it lives on or whatever. It, it, it does. It's like the elixir of life that kind of keeps me moving in a lot mm. of ways are these people that, that you connect with. And uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to explain that. And it's very hard for people to understand that and appreciate it if they're on the outside, unless it's a similar thing in their life. Maybe their group yeah. of teachers that they work with, they have this yeah. bond or so whatever it is. But yeah, I hope that we see a reignition of the appreciation for live entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, which predates the record industry by millennia, right? You know, it goes mm -hmm. all it's so far back. Like this whole thing we're a part of is just a flash and entertainment's yeah. been there since the get-go. So, yeah. You know. But I think that that's a good segue to the final question that I always ask. Bill, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment tied to music up to this point? That I... I'm 36 and I'm living in a warehouse building in Providence surrounded by microphones, computers, guitars. Um, and through music and media, I don't have a job that I hate mm -hmm. and I'm no longer in destitute, like in poverty. And I see a pathway forward to continue to do it and grow. Mm -hmm. um, when everybody told me, go to law school, do this, do that, wear yeah. these clothes, don't talk when the teacher's talking, don't make jokes, uh, don't, don't push back against the bullies, you know, don't, uh, you know, toe the line and to live a life that I'm not towing the line still and I'm getting away with it, mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But at the same time, I'm just going to roll ahead and keep going forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, keep doing it, Bill, man. Uh, you're such a, I don't know, I, I just, I look up to you a lot, man. And uh, you're just, a, you know, a force here in, in Rhode Island um, you know, with what you're doing, obviously musically, but just, you know, what you're doing just in, in a broader sense as well that just spans beyond that. I, you know, truly appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I appreciate you taking some time to uh to let everyone know like a little bit of your history and, and your story to this point so thanks bill thank you james and thanks for what you do as well it's so critical and uh, with this with the hall of fame with your music it's uh it's just so important and good lord you know imagine <laughs> imagine a world where this stuff wasn't acknowledged in a way that you're doing it and the living room itself you know think about I think about that venue and, you know, you start there, you call up, you, you know, Randy books you a Tuesday at seven o'clock. And the next thing you know, he gives you a shot to open up for psychedelic breakfast on a Friday night. And then you're headlining and that facility and, and, and what that world meant to me, um, you know, to keep that specific legacy alive of Randy mm. Hine is just also really, really magical. And, and I'm very thankful you are. Well, thanks, Bill. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Sleepy eyes and gasoline Running down a random dream Try to make the best of things Hope to God you're gonna ring Gotta be free for Gotta be free for There's a lot to be free for 
lot of beat free for hypnotized and running wild hanging on an inner child caught yourself and it brought you back hobo on a railroad track lot of beat free for lot of beat They find the lights